0: Psalm 10 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use a copy uh, in the pew in front of you, and it will be on page, we'll start on page 451. While you're finding your place to, uh, if you're finding your way to Psalm 10, I wanted to thank the elders for giving me the opportunity. We've been members for a few years here, and I have trust and admiration for our elders, but, um, was really shocked when they allowed a lobbyist to take the pulpit. So we'll see if if I still trust you. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. I am a lobbyist. So my usual goal is to persuade, but this morning we're asking the Lord to edify the congregation and to encourage us in the faith. And, um, And we pray that that will happen by looking at Psalm 10. So if you'll stand with me as we read Psalm 10, on page 451, David begins, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks so that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you, might, that you may take into your hands, to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You can be seated. Psalm 10 is a psalm of lament. It's an expression of deep sorrow, as we see. It's deep sorrow, David is expressing his deep sorrow, over the injustice that he witnesses. It's a cry for God to restore justice. And ultimately, it's an affirmation that the Lord is king, and he will do justice. So this psalm is a model for believers For how believers should deal with injustice in the world. And we're all faced with injustice in this post-Genesis 3 world. The fall has corrupted man and nature alike to create an arena where abuse, decay, wickedness, and injustice abounds. We all know it. And we're all believers and unbelievers alike. We're all acutely aware that at the very least something has gone wrong. At the very least, things are not as they should be. So this moral conscience that we have this sense that things are not as they should be was put on display recently in this last year with the numerous mass murders in our country. And we saw our culture uh, face these horrific tragedies, and including self-proclaiming Christians, our country displayed their utter inability to biblically handle these phenomenal atrocities. Similar today, we are faced with remembering, as Dusty mentioned, a, uh, a massive atrocity. Today, we turn our attention to the injustice of elective abortions. Today, uh, Tuesday, will be the 40th anniversary of the Supreme Court decisions, Roe v. Wade and Doe versus Bolton, that together legalized elective abortions across the United States and set the stage for abortion laws globally. This practice now occurs 70, more than 77,000 times each year in our state alone. It occurs more than 1.3 million times a year in the United States alone. And it occurs more than 45 million times every year in our world. Given the moral truth of this tragedy and how it surrounds us in our culture, we Christians this morning need guidance from Psalm 10. Because the inability to respond appropriately to these injustices, uh, our ability makes us, it it causes us to do three, three things. It causes us to avert our eyes from injustice. It causes us to muffle our prayers to not cry out to the Lord. And the third thing is that it causes us to walk past the innocent victims of elective abortion, which are pregnant women and unborn children. Because we don't know how to handle injustice, these three things occur in our lives as Christians, and it's evident in our culture uh, the co- what that causes. So we're going to look to Psalm 10 for guidance, and we're going to look for Psalm 10 as uh, a model for how we should deal with injustice, today being specifically sensitive to the injustice of elective abortion. So in Psalm 10, we have three stages, and this is going to be the outline for our text. The first stage is questioning. In verse 1, the second stage is a description of injustice, which is verses 2 through 11. And third, we have a request according to God's character, and that's verses 12 through 18. And we'll go through those in the text. But That's our our outline here. So first in Psalm 1, let's look at how David laments. He says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? Now, personally, I'm more of an analytical, uh, analytic person. So my first impression here is that David is just doing experiential theology. He's just making truth claims about God that are based on his finite, distorted perspective. Grow up, David. Okay, get over it. Right. But what we see is David. Yes, he is passionately describing the situation that he sees, but he is also accurately describing it as well. And he's actually accurately asking biblical things of God that we'll see. Look at, let's look at what David says. His first, he's asking, why do you stand far away? Why are you so far away, O Lord? Now David is not asking, why are you distancing yourself physically, like deism affirms, or like Jonah's theological error was when he thought he could get in a boat and sail away from Nineveh, out of the presence of God. That's not what David is saying. He's saying the question is metaphorical. It's why are you not getting involved, God? I see this injustice and you're not stopping it. You're not getting involved right now. We see this word is used later in Psalm 22 when David writes, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. So that's more of the sense of it. It's not God, where are you? It's God, why are you there and not getting involved, stopping the injustice. Second, David asks, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why have you hidden yourself? You know that there is trouble, Lord, and you refuse to be involved. Why are you ignoring the cries, like David says in, 50, in Psalm 55? He writes, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. So these two questions that David, that David uh, gives us these two questions share the same problem at the core. We can't see the Lord in action. Either because he's distant or because he's hidden. So we fall back on this. If I can't see it, well God, you're obviously not there. You're obviously not near. You're obviously not involved. Another thing we want to look at in this first verse is the, the, uh, the term time of trouble. This is the same phrase used in the earlier chapter. And in that psalm, David says the Lord is supposed to be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. However, David's complaint here is that God is inactive and he's currently disengaged in what is clearly a time of trouble. So my point is these questions are biblical. It would be easiest for to read them and say, David, just read by, read scripture, have more faith. But that's not it at all. David is questioning God, and he's questioning in such a way that it really is informed by biblical principles. David knows these things are true. He, knows, he has a few biblical truths that he's looking at, God's justice, God's nearness. Um, and, and we see that God is a stronghold in times of trouble. He, he believes all of those things, but that doesn't seem to explain what is before his eyes. And he's crying out to the Lord because of this. We can ask these same questions of God when we're faced with the legal and widespread practice, or sorry, widespread intentional ending of unborn human life. Lord, why are you standing by and not jumping in? Since our world is clearly in a time of trouble, with 45 million abortions a year, that seems to be a time of trouble. Now, as students of theology and scripture, as most of us are here, We're tempted to think that just because we know the root cause for sin, for pain, and for suffering uh, in the world, that we should somehow be immune to feeling it deeply, right? We say that just because I've taken systematic theology, I've written papers on it, and I know the arguments about the problem of evil, that somehow that keeps me from crying out to the Lord, from mourning over injustice before my eyes, Okay this happened to me and my wife whenever we uh, in December when we heard about the Sandy Hook elementary school shooting. We were actually on a road trip when we heard about it, and so we were in the car for several hours today, and of course, all we could think about was as the details came in you know through uh, through Twitter and Facebook as we were reading these articles, as we kept dealing with this atrocity that happened and what occurred is we kept we kept struggling with it we kept Mourning over it. And then one of us would remind each other, well, we shouldn't be surprised. Okay, our doctrine of total depravity actually says we should be surprised that this doesn't happen more often. Right? And I even told Brandy, I even said, given our doctrine of total depravity, this should not disturb us. And I was completely wrong. I was completely wrong. Because just the fact that, uh, just the fact that we understand, we have proper theology doesn 't mean that we're not supposed to be sensitive to injustice, to evil, to sin, remember death has not fully been conquered yet. we still live in this world, we still live in this kingdom now that my comment to Brandy obviously had some mis, uh, it had some bad anthropology in there, which i 'd love to talk about, but that 's not why i 'm here. So there is a philosophical issue about what we're saying about man, and a biblical, proper biblical view of man can correct that. But let's just look at David and look at Psalm 14, just a few chapters after our text. In Psalm 14, verses 1, David writes, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And they all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So David had proper theology, right? David had the T and two of down, right? But still, how can he write in Psalm 10 this deep crying out at the sight of systematic and gross injustice that pervades the world? Okay? This was David who we read earlier. He wrote, Behold my uh, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? He had good theology. Yet our theology should not keep us from godly sorrow and lamentation over abortion. The foremost example of the consequences of Genesis 3 in our world today. So, so David's response is not unholy and it's not disingenuous. That's another problem that modern readers might have with it. Okay. We could have uh, that we could have with this text. But this Psalm 10, the first verse in Psalm 10, is not a corny, pious Facebook status, and it's not a holier than thou tweet. It is a deep prayer over the utter, horrific sins that David sees and the inescapable consequences that come out of that sin. So let's look at it in our second section, starting in verse 2. Let's look at the problem David sees. David's description of injustice. Let's look at these horrific sins that David is witnessing. David's main concern here seems to be that the wicked systematically devour the helpless. And they do it without consequence. David says, the wicked pursue the poor. He hides and he ambushes the weak. He murders the innocent in hidden places. He seizes and crushes them. This is wrong. This is unjust. It doesn't sit well with David, it doesn't sit well with David, and it should not sit well with us. Uh, with us, all humans being created in the image of God, which means that we're moral agents. We're sensitive to the distinction of right and wrong, and we have a gut reaction, a conscience, and, uh, a, a compass that tells us when something is wrong. So, the reason that this systematic wrongdoing disturbed David so much is not just because God has commanded us to do justice, to promote equity and protect the helpless, but also because our drive for justice comes from the very character of God. It sits in the image of God, which comes from the creator himself. So one of the central and defining attributes God has revealed about himself is his justice. Turn over to Deuteronomy 10. In Deuteronomy 10, we'll look at verse 17. We'll see this grand description of our Lord in Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is is God of gods and lord of lords the great the mighty and the awesome god who is not partial and takes no bribe he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothes and even david in psalm 37 simply proclaims the lord loves justice So at the core of God's identity is this idea that he executes justice and he loves justice. This is a simple premise, but it is cosmically consequential. It's actually the fuel of our gospel that we proclaim to our neighbors in the world. This narrative of scripture that we're studying, that we've devoted our lives to, understanding and spreading, is this narrative of scripture. It's driven by the fundamental premise that God, The Lord, Yahweh, the creator, is a just God. There wouldn't be no dilemma of salvation if God wasn't just, right? If he if he, he places a law that we break and he's not just, he can look away. He can forget about it. He can let it slide, right? But the Lord is just. So there was a dilemma when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin entered the world. In the gospel, we see Christ is actually the fulfillment of God's justice. Isaiah 42 makes this point and explains um, uh, it explains that Christ, the Messiah, will bring forth justice to the nations. And we see that he does that through salvation. This actually, this passage from Isaiah is quoted in Matthew 12, after Jesus was baptized. And the ministry of Jesus on earth began, officially began at his baptism. We see that God actually broke the clouds and pronounced over Jesus that this is the one that Isaiah was talking about. This is the one who will bring forth justice, the nations. So at the heart of the gospel, we see that Christ receives injustice. Okay, he actually is paying for what we deserve. So that God does not have to set aside his law. So that God's uh, righteousness will be fulfilled. All history is shaped around this narrative of the gospel. And it's, only, and it's because God is just. And it's, so we see that justice flows from the very character of God... It flows from his work in the world. And because of those two things, the people of God were actually commanded with repeated imperatives throughout Scripture to do justice, to love, to seek justice. In Deuteronomy 16, uh, it clearly says, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. Justice and only justice. Justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So we see this time and time again. We are called to do justice. So we see that unjust acts, like the phallus injustice we're considering today, elective abortion, specifically violates the law of God, it violates the character of God, and it violates his redemptive work in the world. That's why justice is a big deal. That's why looking at this injustice that David is citing is a problem. The, um, the ethical debate around abortion hinges upon whether preborn humans are moral and therefore legal persons. The issue simply came down to this, even in the decision of Roe versus Wade. that, um, And this was the problem, is whether the unborn child, while they're still in the womb should or deserves our protection by our morals and by our law. And the reason that that was the question was because almost all individuals uh or the mass majority of politicians, ethicists, doctors, citizens agree that deliberate and unnaturally, deliberately and unnaturally ending the life of an innocent human person is immoral. That's why no one would say murder should be allowed. So this being our question, where, uh, this being kind of what we assume, the question of abortion comes down to this: is what exactly is a human before it's born? Now, scientifically, it is a separate human. No one argues that it's that the that the baby in the womb is non-human or it's another species until some, you know, some event in the pregnancy. But the question is whether it's a moral person that deserves our protection. Now, this is extremely controversial in our culture, and I would encourage you to look into the question and continue to have discussions about this. But I want to look real quick at how this is, elective abortion is unjust in a biblical context, because this discussion rarely happens. So I quickly want to give you three verses to look at, to consider the biblical view on elective abortion, and specifically this question of personhood. Of the unborn. The first one is the most common verse in the debate, and and it's Exodus 21. And I know I'm telling you to turn to a lot of passages, but Exodus 21 um, is a good place to go. And we'll look at Exodus 21, verse 22 and 25. The law reads When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her child comes, that, or so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hits her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, womb for womb, and stripe for stripe. So in this scenario that the law is giving us, we're assuming that a pregnant woman is hurt in the middle of a fight, and the injury causes premature labor. And there's two scenarios. First, that there's no harm to the mother or the child. That term applies to both in in, in the grammar. So if there's no harm, either one, the baby is healthy, the mother is healthy, then the father gets to name the penalty. This being because the mother or the baby could have possibly been hurt. Okay, that's the first scenario. The second one is, but if there is harm to the mother or to the unborn child, the father doesn't get to decide. But instead, the life-for-life life standard is applied. Because human life, even unborn life, has an absolute legal value. So it's saying you have discretion when there's no harm. Because they were... they were. Not handling it correctly. They were fighting and they put a pregnant woman and her baby in jeopardy. So you can have discretion there, judges, and, and the father. But whenever there is harm, whatever it be, a womb, a hand, an eye, or even a life, there's no discretion. The, the value is absolute. It has to be the life for a life. So what we see here is, and in Hebrew scholars, there is a, an argument there is a discussion in, in this passage I'd encourage you to look at um, about exactly how to translate this. But it doesn't affect the personhood element. And, um, and so just beware. Someone who say, well, there's a discussion about that. Yeah, there is. But even in both interpretations of this passage, the human personhood is the absolute legal value. And it's still saying that that unborn child deserves the protection of the law, even the life-for-life standard. So... This legal uh, this legal penal punishment for accidentally harming a baby would obviously points us that the law 's position on intentionally harming a baby is clear okay? so if you accidentally kill the baby you have it 's a life for life standard, but if you intentionally kill the baby, well, we can assume what the law 's position would be on that that would be covered in the commandment that that shall not kill so and just an interesting note here in our Texas law, we do have a penalty for something like this. Okay? If a mother uh, is pregnant and she's harmed in a violent assault or something like that, and the baby does die, or the woman is harmed and the baby is harmed, that's two victims in our courts. Okay? Even though he, the baby was unborn. However, we have a huge exception to this law because of Roe versus Wade. So if the woman has consented to ending the life of the unborn child, then it's not illegal to to end the unborn child's uh, life. So we just kind of see this double-minded nature in our law. Um, so, So that's the first one. The law clearly says unborn life should be protected. The second one I'll point to is David himself who he identifies the beginning of his existence at conception. And multiple prophets do this as well. But David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. And then in Psalm 139, verse 13, David says, You formed my inward parts, not some inward parts that would later become me. He says, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Not you knitted some blobs of tissue together that later you would call David. So David clearly says things he personally began as uh, at conception. And the third one I'll point you to is Luke 1, 41. And that shows us the story when Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Her unborn child kicked at the voice of Mary. And it says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she proclaimed... The baby in my womb leapt for joy. And this Greek term baby is actually the one we would use for children if they were outside of the womb. That's why she has to clarify the baby in my womb. There's no fetus. She doesn't, she doesn't say that. She says the baby. Which baby? Well, not the one running around. The one actually in my womb. So it's the same Greek. So Scripture clearly considers the unborn human as a moral person equal to a born infant or child. And this means that that unborn child does possess the image of God, and that means that this unborn child should be protected by the explicit commandment, thou shalt not kill. So, biblically, elective abortion is on the same moral grounds of murder. And just like any other murder, like the Sandy Hook shootings, it's an ultimate act of injustice. Let's look at what David says in his own nation. Look in verse 2. David writes in Psalm back to Psalm 10. David writes in verse 2, "The wicked hotly pursue the poor, catching them in devised schemes." In verse 8, he describes, "The wicked sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places he murders the innocent." The wicked is always looking for the helpless. Now, earlier I mentioned the the core of the moral debate is around this personhood question. But that's not the only moral element of elective abortion. We see that abortion is not just a practice. It's not just a service that is freely available to women who want it. Elective abortion has become an institution. It's an industry that targets specific demographics Specific populations. Specific villages. Specific victims. Certain pregnant women and their children are the victims. And yeah, I I do consider pregnant women to be the victims of abortion. In this passage, we shouldn't read the pregnant women who have made this decision as the wicked one. Because the scheme that is the wicked one in our context, in the abortion industry. It's a business model. The data reveals that 79% of Planned Parenthood abortion facilities are located near either African American or Hispanic neighborhoods. And 45% are placed so that they are within walking distance to both type of minority neighborhoods. This scheme, this wicked net has had devastating effects on their target market. And it's seen in the statistics. We see that African Americans make up less than 13% of our population in the U.S., but African American women account for more than 36% of all U.S. abortions. That means that 47% of all African-American pregnancies in the U.S. end in abortion. 47%. Whereas the U.S. average is 22%. This is a targeted village. This is a targeted victim. We see in the Hispanic community the same similarity, a disproportionate effect on this one type of woman on this population. Another category of the helpless that are targeted is the disabled. Ninety percent of unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome are now aborted in the United States. Ninety percent. This is a scheme. This is a wicked net. This is a systematic institution aiming at certain categories of individuals, the helpless, the poor, the weak. Verse 9, David says, He lurks like a lion so that he may seize the poor. David goes from the image of robbers hiding to the image of a lion crouching, hunting. He seizes the poor when he draws in his net, And we see that the poor are also victims of the abortion industry. 69% of women having abortions are economically disadvantaged and living below poverty. 69%. It's a scheme. The helpless are crushed in verse 10. They sink down. They fall by his might. We see that the wicked are not just scheming and planning, but their, their plans are accompanied by violence. More than 60% of women seeking abortion are coerced. They feel coercion. This is not a service that they're freely asking for. In other countries like China and in India, sex-selective abortions are not, uh, are not just popular but actually commonplace. In China, the government is actually actively coercing women to have abortions because of their one-child policy. In the United States, 42 states, including Texas, legalize abortions at the point where a child's, uh, it's been proven that a child can feel pain during the procedure. It's not just schemes, it's not just a business model, it's violence. We should be, we should be like David, we should be crying out to the Lord. Over this injustice. But David's not just writing a sad song. David's not just mourning hopelessly. Remember, this is a song. David is crying out to the Lord. He's crying out to him according to God's character. And that's why we have this third section In verses 12 through 18, we see that David here is calling God to action. But while he's doing that, he's affirming truths about God. We see that throughout this passage, and I encourage you, a little bit of homework, I encourage you to look at the thoughts of the wicked man. And see the progression of the thoughts of the wicked man. They change. He starts out very prideful and then he ends up a little bit more unsure about whether the Lord is just. And and so the wicked man, he denies that God is there. He denies that God sees the acts. And then he denies that God will hold them accountable. But in the opposite direction, David is affirming all of this. In the opposite direction, David is affirming this and asking that God that you will you'll do all of those things, but that you'll hold the wicked accountable soon. He has confidence he will, but he's asking, do it now. Look in verse 12. David writes, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. With the help of the... Holy Spirit believers like David. We have to remind ourselves of the revealed biblical truths. Here in verse 12, David is imploring the Lord to act, to get involved. Don't be far off but come near, Lord. Don't stand by but help. Verse 13, we see David writes, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call into account Okay, so David is reiterating, he's quoting the the wicked one, that the wicked one's saying, God, you're not just, you're not going to be judging us. But then David answers in verse 14, you do see the injustice. You note the wrongdoing and those that disrupt peace. And I, I love this verse because it promises the fulfillment of my yearning for justice that I was created with. David is a, what David is doing here in verse 14, he's combating the appearances of his situation with gospel truth. He's combating his doubts, his mourning, his sorrow with what has already been revealed. That God is just, but we don't see him. He seems far, but he is near. I say that this is a gospel truth because all throughout redemptive history we see God as helper of the fatherless and that he's a near helper. But the biggest example of this is when God came so near to us that he could take our place in penalty of death. A far God can't do that. It wasn't enough for God to do some cosmic court out of our sight. No, God came in flesh to be near to us. He touched the sick. He healed them. He reached out his hand to the children and hugged them, embraced them. That is a near God. From our perspective, we have no excuse to believe the partial truth that God is far Because we see the gospel truth that no, God is so near that he would not let us remain in our sin. Looking at verse 16, David writes, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. The Lord is king forever and ever. Remember Deuteronomy 10, we read earlier, God is Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice. That's a kingly act. It's a judging act. He's executing justice. In verse 17, we see a direct answer to David's original question. You do hear the desires of the afflicted. And you will strengthen them. You will incline your ear. This is a future. This is, what we see here is that we can trust this promise of a future action because the Lord does love justice, as we saw in Psalm 37. But the problem remains is we have these questions And we have a future hope. We don't have immediate answers. The Lord is not immediately ending elective abortion. He's not immediately shutting down abortion clinics in our city. But our frustration finds its climax in the death of Christ. Because God's answer was in the resurrection. That was the promise. That was proof that death will be conquered. It's not as if our future hope is still unfulfilled. Yes, we sit here waiting on this side of heaven. But we already have the assurance of the gospel work of Christ. Remember, Christ is fulfilling God's justice. And we already have the proof of that in the resurrection. So, we hope for fuller answers. We hope for a better, time, a, a better place to look at the injustices of the world and the consummation in the end times. But currently, we're not hoping in something empty. We already have the promise and the fulfillment in the resurrection. So, we have three responses to this truth, or, uh, to, to this psalm. And, they're, and just so we can remember them, there are three areas of our body. So first, we, re, we respond to the injustice. We respond to the direction that Psalm 10 gives us with our eyes, with our knees, and with our feet. I'm a lobbyist, so I have to have a lot of tricks to, to help myself remember things. So this is one of them. <clears throat> We should respond with our eyes. We should look at injustice. We should look at it. We should be familiar with it. David obviously was. We don't avert our eyes from the needy. The helpless, the fatherless, the widow, or any other victim. David did not avert his eyes. He looked right into the corruption of his land so that he could informatively and correctly ask the Lord for help. The deep sorrow that we get from looking at the injustice should remind us of the gospel. We are fallen. How the gospel is real, and it's really needed in our sinful and ugly land. And ultimately, we look with our eyes through the injustice for the future kingdom. The promise of Christ, who will be the king forever and ever. Our knees, we respond with our knees. God is not just writing a sad song, as I mentioned. He's not just wallowing in his sadness. He looked into the wickedness and to the oppressed. And then what does he do in Psalm 10? He writes a song. He cries out to the Lord, he prays. This is not David's journal. This is not his diary. This is a prayer for the Lord. He prays for the safety of the oppressed. We should be praying that the unborn will be spared and live. We need to pray against the wicked. That's what David does, right? We should pray that the abortion industry would crumble. We should pray that they will lose their appeal to misinformed and abused women. We should pray that they will lose their taxpayer funding. We should pray that they will be exposed, that they will be seen as the crouching lion that they are, that are sitting in ambush in our villages. We should pray for pregnant women. We should pray that they would be courageous and strong and find refuge and support in times of trouble. But we don't stop at praying for that. Number three, our feet. We react, we respond with our feet. What we do with our eyes and our knees should inform our feet with what to do. We must go to the needy. We, might not, well, we should not just avoid the needy, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, going to the other side of the road, not to mess with the injustice that's already occurred. We must go to the pregnant woman by serving her through ministries like the Pregnancy Help Center of Fort Worth. We must go protect the unborn. That means that we have to continue to fight for stroke, for strong pro-life laws and ultimately overturning Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. The Lord who loves justice calls us to do justice. Not just to bring the message of how the justice of God has been satisfied. Yes, that's one thing we do when we go. But we also go to protect the helpless, to save the innocent and restore justice in our land. We have an adoption fund. That's one thing we can do with our feet, is we can go and give others support in the ministry of adoption. Go and bless others so that they can save the helpless. They can assist the unborn by giving them a loving home. And give an alternative for pregnant women who are facing an unplanned pregnancy. And we should. What we do is, we should support and get culturally involved through nonprofits like Texas Right to Life. That's what we do with our feet. Is we go to help the poor directly and indirectly by stopping the systematic, the systematic schemes of the enemy through laws, legislation, court decisions. Isaiah pleads for Judah in chapter 1, and he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Let's pray. Dear Father, give us the strength to do this, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Lord, inform us of how we can serve in our community. Give us the courage to look at the injustice. Lord, we praise you for our salvation. We praise you for the justice of the gospel, Lord. And we pray that we'll become a just people who love justice and love bringing justice to those who need it in our land.